I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about U.S. airstrikes against Houthi rebels and other entities in the Middle East, we have with us Mr. Norman Rule. Norm is a CSIS senior advisor, non-resident here at CSIS, but with us all the time. Norm is a longtime public servant and former U.S. intelligence official. Norm, thanks for being here today. You know, let's just start out with the most recent news. We're talking on February 8th. And just late yesterday, the United States reported that it struck a target in Baghdad. What do we know about that particular strike and why it happened? No, good morning, Andrew, and thank you for uh, having me again. Yesterday, uh, Central Command uh, announced that it conducted a, a surgical strike in eastern Baghdad that destroyed a vehicle and killed three Iraqi militants. The most important of the three was an individual named Abu Bakr Asadi. He was also accompanied by Arkan Elalewi. These two individuals are senior members of Kitab Hezbollah. They are seasoned mid-level Kitab Hezbollah officials with significant experience in drone operations, attacks against U.S. forces, and they are highly trusted by the Iranians. In fact, uh, Abu Bakr Saidi was a former bodyguard of the founder of Kitab Hezbollah. That would be Abu Mahdi al-Mahandis, who was killed by the United States with Qasem Soleimani. And to give you a sense of how trusted Abu Bakr Saidi was in that dynamic, he was one of the very few people who routinely accompanied Mohandas wherever Mohandas went to include in his most sensitive discussions with Quds Force personnel. And he was permitted to carry firearms uh, on his person during these meetings and other encounters, which gives you a sense of Quds Force trust for these individuals. I think if I were to put this into a bureaucratic or architectural sense, the United States has eradicated maybe the director of uh, drone operations in Kitab Hezbollah, certainly the individual behind the uh, dozens and dozens of attacks against the United States. And the second individual who was killed of the three was a senior intelligence official who aided those attacks. So these were important targets. And remind us, what exactly is Kitab Hezbollah and, and what is its relationship with Hezbollah in Lebanon? When the U.S.-led forces that invaded Iraq, the Iranians responded by returning to uh, Iraq um, a large number of Shia oppositionists of Saddam Hussein. These oppositionists had lived in um, Iran for many years, and they had various gradations of ideological and operational reliability for the Iranians. Some were quite uh, extreme and reliable for the Iranians and capable of conducting long-term military and political operations, some less so. This group, then known as the Badr Corps, fragmented into a number of militias. This most significant militia of Kitab Hezbollah appeared from this group with other actors involved, led by a former longtime terrorist named Abu Mahdi al-Mahandis. And it undertook a number of actions against U.S. forces 
when we were in Iraq and did so at the behest of the Quds Force, which provided it with significant training, with significant uh, weaponry, uh, explosive form projectiles, improvised rocket-assisted munitions. The Kitab Hezbollah became a significant political actor in the popular mobilization forces that sort of the state militias that were absorbed into the Iraqi military and uh, continue to dominate a lot of their Iraq security decision makings, unfortunately. And it remains a dominant Iran proxy in Iraq. There are other Iranian proxies, but Qatab Hezbollah is uh, one of the most capable and the most deadly. So, Norm, we're seeing action in Baghdad. Over the past weekend, we saw action in Syria. We saw action against the Houthis in Yemen. Where does this all stand right now? And, you know, in particular, where does the United States stand in the conflict with the Houthis? So I think in general, if we're looking at the whole region, U.S. foreign policy has remains consistent. Our position is we do not seek a wider conflict. We do not seek a conventional war with Iran. We do not seek to undertake actions that would involve U.S. ground forces in the region. We will rely first and foremost on defensive actions to prevent harm to our troops and the operations they're responsible for conducting in the region. And again, our troops in Syria and Iraq are there to counter Daesh. Um, conduct some counterterrorism training for the Iraqi military as well. The U.S. will respond when our personnel are struck or significant attacks are deemed successful against the United States. And if personnel are killed, we will undertake operations to directly punish and even kill individuals responsible for that. And we have seen this occur a couple of times in Syria and Iraq. I think what we're watching here that's different is first, generally, the United States tries to avoid actions in Iraq because we are concerned with Iraqi stability. It's a very complex political environment. We don't wish to complicate the presence of U.S. troops. This killing yesterday will certainly do that. And at the same time, we are reluctant to further involve ourselves in a conflict the United States hopes that by bringing about a long-term ceasefire or significantly diminishing the scale of violence in Gaza, that that will, that will take away the energy from militias who are attacking our forces and others in the region. I'm not perhaps quite as confident as some of the spokesmen have been on that, but it's a sound um, piece of logic. I think what we've seen change in the last couple of weeks is that this defensive posture has become a little more offensive uh, in Yemen. We've watched uh, U.S. and British forces undertake operations to destroy Houthi missiles and drones before they take off, but while they are prepared to be launched, that allows us to destroy more of their ordnance on the ground. It allows us to destroy more of that capability without having to go through the risk that a defensive operation might succeed. And what we've seen in Iraq is uh, certainly an a escalation of U.S. Uh, risk tolerance. The attack that took place in eastern Baghdad yesterday was very professionally undertaken. There were no civilian casualties. It conveys a sense of extremely good intelligence collection that is able to follow a moving target in an urban environment. And that those operations were obviously deadly to our adversary. I think we're trying to raise not just the cost of hostile actions against us, but to go higher up within the architecture of the militias to instill a sense of deterrence. Well, so, you know, what's also interesting, Norm, and, you know, I wanted to ask you about this is some of the criticism of the administration was 
that they were striking targets in the Middle East that were replaceable. Things like equipment, things like vehicles, things like, you know, inanimate objects, not people, so to speak. Yesterday that changed and we went after senior targets. Do you expect there will be more of that? And, you know, and then the question is, I think, is what we're doing actually working? That's several questions. So let's start with the nature of U.S. strikes prior to this point. It's certainly true that the vast majority of U.S. response has been targeted against facilities and locations. That's not nothing, as they say. Um, The attacks against these facilities has degraded uh, command and control, intelligence fusion centers, and has destroyed a significant amount of capability that certainly would have been used against us uh, with perhaps lethal consequences. So we can't underplay that. Secondly, the nature of the weaponry that we have used has been long distance, offsite, and has demonstrated significant precision professionalism and intelligence capacity. And that is a message itself to an adversary because it says, today I hit this facility, I could just as easily hit you. You need to think about that as you make your next steps. As the political weight of the adversary, in this case, the Houthis and the militias continued towards violence, you saw a gradual escalation, as I stated, to attacks on the ground, uh, attacks uh, uh, in Iraq, which is uh, unusual, an attack in Iraq that killed uh, militia commanders, uh, militia operatives following the um, uh, attack that killed three of our, our personnel in Jordan. And now you have this, this issue. So in each case, we're messaging to militia leaders and indirectly to Iran, if you don't knock this off, we're going to gradually move up the escalatory ladder. So the question then becomes, is that working? That's a difficult question to answer. And it's a difficult question to answer because you don't know what could have happened. You only know what does happen. So if the militias do turn down the pace of their action, and there was some evidence that some of the rhetorical commentary from Iraq since the death of our personnel has shifted, there are things that are being prevented. And that will only be known perhaps through intelligence collection, if at all. But you've also got a sense of within the adversary, they have to start thinking. So let's look at yesterday's attack and the attacks that followed the the killing of our forces. That demonstrates significant understanding of the adversary. Locations where work is conducted, specific sites at large locations. The strikes we conducted after the death of our personnel in Jordan included 85 targets on seven large facilities. So there were a lot of target potentials on those facilities. We knew exactly where to hit. If you are inside of an adversary right now, you should be thinking, what do I do to make sure that I'm not in the next strike? How good is my... Uh, counterintelligence? How good is my my ability to compartment operations and activities? How good is my security? How deep is my hole? How hard is the cement that's going to keep me from being killed by a drone? Should I get into that car and drive around? Should I go to that meeting with my supervisors? So you do inject a, a sense of uncertainty, and that does lead to some operational incoherence and degradation with your adversary. That That should never be ignored. But in the end of the day, if you're in Tehran, we've touched nothing of significant consequence to Iran's leadership or to the Quds Force. 
Now, certainly the two men of the three men yesterday are a significant loss of experience and um, capacity, but this is not difficult to replace. Likewise, regarding Iran, the personnel that it withdrew from the area and the uh, U.S. has stated that the sites hit in Iraq and Syria following the Jordan attack were associated with the IRGC. That means IRGC works there, has some personnel that come there occasionally, may even have uh, training undertaken there. Those personnel can be returned in some cases to similar facilities in a matter of hours. Last, the ordinance that has been destroyed in Syria and Iraq, for example, is a part of a vast collection of ordinance that uh, can be drawn upon if the adversary believes it can be successful in punching uh, back against us. So let me now twist this to, so if you're the adversary, what do you do? And the answer is, you hurry up and you slow down. The first thing you do is you have to show defiance. You have to show that there is some sort of consequence, uh, but you don't do anything foolish. So um, I think we're going to see some effort to complicate the presence of US troops in Iraq. The Iraqi government has come out strongly against the US attack yesterday, but nonetheless, I think that will happen. Uh, you might see action against the US in another environment in another operational area. You might see crowds being called upon to undertake protests, which could turn violent against the United States. There are a variety of tools that could be used to show that response. But in the back, the people conducting lethal and kinetic operations haven't gone away. The Quds Force officers responsible for Iraq and Yemen haven't gone away. They have their eight-hour day job, and they're going to be saying, what do we do to punish the United States and its partners. And that remains a persistent problem. So Norm, despite the messages that we've sent over the last week, do you believe that the United States is still showing uh, too much restraint here? I would say that too much is a subjective phrase. I would instead say our restraint brings consequences. The consequences are not only that within Iran, Iran's leadership will say, the United States continues to demonstrate that it's not willing to touch us. And until that changes, apparently we haven't touched a red line and we can keep going, doing what we're doing, albeit perhaps in a different area where the US isn't focusing, using personnel that are have yet to be touched, playing with that environment in that way. And I, th I think if I can just digress for a moment, when you're looking at deterrence, it's a word that's thrown around too often and too easily. Deterrence is like a four burner stove in which one burner is hot. You know not to touch that one burner because something bad will happen to you, but you know you can work in other areas because the heat is not being applied to those burners. If you're an adversary, you look for places where your opponent is not applying pressure and where you have capacity. That's another country, perhaps, a different type of tool, um, the Arabian Sea, East Africa, the U.S. homeland. And even with the burner that's hot, when your opponent looks at those other areas, there's a tendency to lower the heat in that burner. You can always come back. So it's never a permanent action. It's usually a temporary action that is only sustained by your adversary's sense. How committed are you to following this? How committed are you of following through? Uh, have we tested you and have you pass those tests. I don't think we're we're achieving any of that with Iran. One more comment, and I'm sorry for going on so long, but I want to add one more thing, and that is, if you're in the region, the United States is saying, we're your partner, we're standing with you. And by the way, we're, we're bringing massive forces to the region, and we have an extraordinarily capable force. So within the region, and that ranges from Iran 
to our partners and our allies in, in, in the area who work there, they have no doubt that we have extraordinary capabilities, none whatsoever. To include the Iranians, which is a very professional military force, even with somewhat primitive military capacity, other than their uh, missile and other asymmetric tools. But it's a question of our intent of how and when we will use that. So if we don't undertake a robust, immediate response to attacks against our personnel, and instead we practice only defense, what does that mean if we've told a partner in the Gulf, we will stand with you if you are attacked? Because it sounds like our response is going to be, we're going to help you defend. And as long as you defend, that is not going to change how we engage, uh, for, at least for a while, until there's significant loss of life or personnel. And I think that might push people in the region to hedge with other countries, to include detente with Iran, relations with China and Russia, perhaps changing their relationship with the United States. It's just a complication policymakers need to consider. Because we're saying we'll defend you, but we're not saying we will get out ahead of the problem and do anything proactive. Is that, is that, do I understand that right? I think it's more than, I think it's more of we will respond to attacks, but we will respond at a time and place of our choosing. And that might be after multiple attacks. So the U.S. administration has been quite clear with those points. The president has directed that troops be protected. The president has directed that we do everything we can to prevent action against our troops. But how many attacks have there been against U.S. ships in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden? How many drone attacks have and rocket attacks have there been against U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria? How many then responses took place after that? And I think if you're in another country, that does sound like as long as you can keep batting away the adversary's uh, lethal ball, the United States is not going to stand with you to signal deterrence through an offensive response. That's a very subjective political decision. You could have a president say, if you fire on our troops once, we respond next day with, because we apparently have great intelligence, the next day with an attack on the adversary to say, don't do that again. Or you can say, as long as I defended the attack, there's a difference between a successful attack and a failed attack. I'm willing to absorb those to show strategic deterrence and not play the adversary's game of crawling up the escalatory ladder. Those are very subjective policy decisions and, uh, and each one has significant costs. But this current route the cost will be the Iranians and militias will believe they've yet to touch red lines across the region. So the consequences of U.S. self-restraint at this point is the Iranians still feel emboldened. They feel like they can push the envelope with their proxies and nothing's changed that much. Is that Do I have that right? Yes, although they may believe that they should work in a different geography, use a different type of tool use a different type of response. Asymmetric responses are something that are generally not looked at in terms of some of the discourse on this issue. It's the equivalent of saying, you punch me, I punch you back. Okay, that's a symmetric response. But what if the answer is, you punch me, and instead I break one of your windows. You punch me, and I make your business fail. You punch me, and I kick one of your best friends who then turns to you and says, you know, why I'm facing problems because, because of your actions. There are a lot of ways to do this. So let's turn that around. What if Iran's response would be, you punch me, 
I decided to go to 90% enriched uranium. That asymmetry of response is something policymakers must consider. So it's not quite as simple as, you know, if we hit them, they'll get the message. Norm, you've mentioned several times that you think our intelligence is strong in the region. And you would know, having been part of this apparatus for decades. But let me ask this. The United States and Israel both admitted to intelligence failures after October 7th. How have we regrouped since then? And are you confident that the United States and our ally Israel and our other allies are going to be able to foresee threats and be able to deal with them? I want to be clear what I know and what I don't know. I know many of the personnel involved in the intelligence community working this issue. They're brilliant. They're tenacious. They're hardworking. They're underpaid. And they sacrifice a lot to get the job done. Intelligence isn't covering every issue in the world. It can't. We should never expect that. But a lot of bad things don't happen because of intelligence and that's that. But the one one or two bad things that do happen, no matter how significant or insignificant they might be, that bites hard in the intelligence world. Clearly, the, the Israelis, the United States, the British, the French, the Egyptians, the Qataris had no intelligence that would have allowed them to have prevented that issue. There have been some stories out there. Of, you know, someone tried to warn, et cetera, et cetera. I cannot imagine someone saying, you know, I have this extraordinary event that's about to happen and I'm going to submit it in a fax to somebody, to one service, and I'm not going to tell the whole world because this terrible tectonic issue is about to happen. So I don't think anyone had that. There are resource decisions. There are prioritization decisions that policymakers and all organizations undertake. I think we have spent uh, maybe too little time over the years, multiple years, uh, looking at Iran's proxies uh, with the type of focus needed. And before you fix that, you need a lot of work and it takes time. I think you're looking at uh, attacks that are taking place in Yemen that are now frustrated because we're hitting the missiles and drones as they're about to take off. Those are intelligence successes. And these are multi-source programs. It might be human, SIGINT, GEOINT. Geo it might be a variety of open source information. There's a lot of different ways you can cover this. But the bottom line is, if I, it might just be that the best thing we can say right now is uh, we're fairly confident that the Iranians and their proxies will continue to engage in lethal activity and policymakers need to have a strategy yesterday demonstrated that we have a capacity as a country to identify and follow in very complicated environments bad actors and then eradicate those bad actors in a way that does not uh, impact innocent civilians. That's quite a skill. And we should applaud all the people, the operators, the intelligence collectors, the people who built the weapons. I mean, a lot of different players are in that team's success. But this is complicated and hard. But my bottom message to, to you and your listeners is the intelligence community has a lot of heroes in it. And Norm, what does all this mean to the Houthis as they watch targets get destroyed and people be destroyed in other countries? Well, I think it, it conveys a similar message, which is the United States has a capacity which, if used, could be lethal and significantly degrading to uh, organizational ordinance. The phrase, if used, becomes now a political discussion. 
So the Houthi leaders are probably saying to themselves, do we think the United States wishes to involve itself in a Yemeni conflict? Do we have any evidence the uh, United States targets the senior most leadership of an organization? Do we have any evidence that the United States is going to stick to a long-term um, uh, campaign against uh, Yemen? And I think the answer to each three of those questions would be based on public information, statements by the administration, no, no, and no. And just yesterday, I think uh, the day before, we had a statement by our military that we're not there for a long-term conflict. And um, that tells you if you're on the other end that, well, they're not here for the long term. I just have to survive and keep punching. And at the end of this, I'll be standing. And if I'm missing a lot of ordinance, well, I can get more from Iran in the future. If I'm missing some key people, I can grow some more people. You know, I can build, build that capacity over time too. Survival is victory for any of Iran's proxies. Norm, so this all begs the question, how does this end? And what is success for the United States and our allies? Those are two questions that should be asked repeatedly uh, in any uh, significant operation involving a war zone. The two questions in my mind have always been, what sort of conflict is this going to be? And what is victory? Because you can then work backwards from that and establish architectures, resourcing, intelligence questions, all the things you need to do, decide what you won't be doing because this is more or less important. All those questions come into mind. I think we can take confidence that the administration is being truthful. First, it believes that it can reduce the level of proxy activity by reducing the level of violence in Gaza. You can agree with that or disagree with that. I think that's a firm position. The United States is not interested in expanding this conflict. It's not interested in a conventional conflict with Iran, and it's not interested in leaving the Middle East. Those statements, I think you can have a lot of confidence in that. And the fact that we have an aircraft carrier task force that is enabling global trade through the Red Sea, even when much of that trade does not impact the United States directly, tells you once again, we're there for certain requirements uh, in a way that no one else can replicate. But I think it also tells you something about the adversary. The adversary's position is, the US is not interested in a conventional war. I'm gonna survive. I can maintain this level of activity and most of the response will be defensive. I can maintain this level of activity and if there is a consequence to my architecture or population of personnel, it is um, survivable and probably within parameters of general acceptance. Uh, and I think, therefore, I don't see a reason for Iran and its proxies to cease what they're doing. Since the beginning of the October 7th massacre in the war since then, I've had a few statements that I've thrown out repeatedly, and I like to throw those out now because I think they still apply. First, none of the actors in the region have any strategic drivers that push them towards a conventional conflict, because that conflict would threaten significant economic and political ambitions that they have domestically and internationally. The second comment is, for Iran and its proxies, they have multiple incentives to continue the current level of violence, although the pace frequency and intensity of that violence will vary by geography, and within a specific time frame. The last two sentences are, 
the weapons being used by the Iranians and their proxies have extreme lethality associated with them. They're weapons of mass destruction. Missile hits something, kills a lot of people, car bombs, drones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have the technology to defend against those. But if any of those strike, we would have perhaps significant casualties. And my last comment is, and that therefore means we do have a risk of what I would call a gravity sink event. And that is in essence that through a catastrophic success by the Iranians, and we should put aside the foolish notion that they don't understand that their weapons are lethal. I've seen some of that. And I just, I think I, the gentlest thing I can say is the people who say that Iran is pulling back because they didn't realize their weapons were, were lethal, uh, that's a that should be discounted. And I'll say it gently. But if this bad thing happens, we do run the risk of gravity of the event pulling in behaviors by a variety of policymakers in very different cultures and countries. And the consequences from that, like a stone being thrown in the water, will create ripples. We may not be able to entirely imagine multipolarity, further violence, conventional war, economic decision making. So there are some serious risks here because of the nature of that activity. And I think that's where we need to keep our eye. Norm, this is great. Thank you. You've given us so much to think about and to really contemplate as this continues to grind on. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You ask uh, tough questions. Uh, I can I can say you're 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 certainly ready to be a policymaker or a congressman getting ready for a hearing. <laughs> I just wouldn't want to face you every day. Norm, I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, the Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, the Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 